There he goes. One of God's own prototypes. A high-powered mutant of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, and too rare to die. Welcome to episode 69 of the Digital Freemason Podcast for the week of November 19th, 2007. I'm your host, Scott, and I'll be taking you along on my excellent adventures through the world of short Masonic educational papers. This uh, episode, as well as all previous episodes, are available at uh, the website, www.thedigitalfreemason.com. Swing by there and you can check it out and see what all there is to see there. And one of the questions I have is, been taking a look at the site, it's been up and active for the last couple months, but trying to figure out what other things that I would like to put in there. Uh, will there be a discussion forum or not? So it dawned on me that I should probably uh, talk to you, uh, you people who are listening to the podcast as to what you might want. Uh, I know there's a lot of different areas uh, on the internet to uh, have discussions, and don't want to be flooding the internet with yet another place to have to have a forum, but uh, who knows, it might be good. So if you have any thoughts on that, give me a shout uh, at uh, podcast at thedigitalfreemason.com, and I look forward to uh, seeing what it is that uh, people would like to do, and uh, we can get maybe get moving on that. So the this week's episode is um, the credibility gap in Masonic ritual, and it deals with sort of some of the historical um, liberties that are taken in the in our ritual as it's uh, based on the uh, volume of the sacred law. He just talks about some of the comparisons and why possibly it is moved from what it is identically in the volume of the sacred law to where it's sitting in, uh, in our ritual. And I know as a literal black and white guy myself, uh, some of these things, uh, I don't like the dichotomies or they confuse me. But this gives a really good explanation as to why some of them are. And so it just says, you know, sit back, relax, and uh, don't take things too literally. And so this comes from the Grand Lodge of Canada in the province of Alberta. And uh, it does make reference to a few Canadian things, but all in all, it's, uh, it's a very good piece. So let's get going with this, the credibility gap in Masonic ritual. The solemnity of Masonic ceremonies, we are told, requires a serious deportment, and evidently, a Freemason is expected to take his ritual seriously. If he does, he may get the impression that his Grand Lodge descends in an unbroken line from biblical times, and that if he, if he is really interested, he could find portraits of all Grand Masters from Solomon, King of Israel, down to present day. This, alas, is not true. Between then and now, there has been an unabridged gap of over 2,000 years. In the circumstances, we may perhaps feel that the call of the worshipful master's situation by the name of the chair of King Solomon is at best misleading. By this, there is no means, and that the only place in which the Masonic ritual does not seem reliable by objective standards. We are told, for example, of a biblical episode in which the Ephraimites, being a phonetic, phonetically peculiar group with their mode of speech, could not pronounce certain word correctly. The problem allegedly was a defect in aspiration peculiar to their dialect. From a strict linguistic point of view, this explanation is incorrect. While the letter H by itself is an aspirate, the distinction between the sound of S and SH is not one of aspiration. 
Again, in some jurisdictions, the ritual asserts that the Egyptian philosophers concealed by their particular tenets and principles under certain hieroglyphical figures and expressed their notions of government by signs and symbols, which they communicated to the priest or magi alone, who were bound by oath never to reveal them. That is, it clings to a symbolic interpretation of ancient Egyptian writing, which has been abandoned in competent circles ever since the hieroglyphs were first deciphered, about 1815. When it recounts biblical stories, the ritual regularly adds details which are not attested to in the volume of the sacred law, such as various gestures and signs, and some certain architectural features associated with the temple. Some of the details which are thus added, but are not very plausible. Thus, the temple of King Solomon no doubt had a flat roof, as buildings in that part would regularly have, even to this day. But the ritual tells us that it had a dormer window, which implies the existence of a pitched roof. The way in which this error came into the ritual is very interesting. It arose from what I like to call a tension between fidelity and utility. We like to think that the Masons made efforts to be faithful to their traditions in the old documents, and they tried to transmit what they had learned as accurately as they could. But, if the form of a word could be corrupted in some way, it might no longer be intelligible, and it would have to be modified or amended if it were to be continued to make sense. Apparently, the word uses, used in this particular context which was originally broached or nell, an ornel being a kind of rather soft white building stone, and broached meaning having its surface picked, indented, or furrowed by a narrow point, pointed stone chisel called a brooch. After the words had been become unfamiliar to the people who were using them, they were particularly liable to accidental alteration. So, in the Edinburgh Register House Manuscript of 1696, broached ornel turned into a broached oval. In other sources, the two words came with the wrongly divided and were turned into a broached dorn. This was meaningless, and so some corrected it to a porch dormer. The Masonic work also takes minor biblical characters and magnifies their significance out of all proportion. It turns an unimportant religious functionary in Chronicles 9, 10, 24, and 17 into the associate high priest and an accomplished metal founder and into King Solomon's principal architect. It does bizarre things with a member of the tribe of Judah, who was casually mentioned in the Chronicles. It willfully distorts and mistranslates Hebrew words. Thus, we are told that the name, names recorded in the book of Genesis are, means worldly possessions. In reality, it seems to mean producers of weapons. The Masonic ceremonies even misquote the Bible. Thus, while the children of Israel were escaping from the Egyptian bondage, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, and by night in a pillar of fire. This was a single pillar, which at different times, to different people, had different appearances. Masonic ritual makes it into two miraculous pillars, the prototypes of the two great pillars which stood at the porchway or entrance of King Solomon's temple. Now, as a matter of fact, the largest collection of such aberrations is associated with the temple itself. First, let's look at its general description as contained in the volume of the sacred law. The religious part of the temple was about 30 feet wide and consisted of three main subdivisions. At the front, or east, was a shallow porch, vestibule, or entrance hall about 15 feet deep. This is where the two great pillars of hollow bronze stood. 
Behind the porch and its pillars was a house of the Lord, of the Lord a long, narrow chamber divided into two unequal parts by doors of olive wood, or, later in times, by a veil or curtain. Towards the front was a larger room, called a nave, or the holy place. In it stood an altar where the chief priest burned sweet incense every morning and evening. Here also was a table with twelve fresh loaves of bread, which were set every Sabbath as an offering to the Lord. The smaller room at the back was called the Oracle, the most holy place, or the Holy of Holies, or in Latin, Sanctum Sanctorum. Here was the dwelling place of God. It was completely empty, except for the Ark of the Covenant and a cherubim. No one entered it except the high priest, not even he but once a year on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. This much of the building was the Lord's house, the religious part of the temple. All the way around the building, except in the front, ran a series of sheds called galleries, or the side chambers. They were divided into three stories or floors, which were called respectively the nethermost chamber, the middle chamber, and the third chamber. We read further in the volume of the Sacred Law that the door for the middle chamber was to the right side of the house, and they went up to the winding stairs into the middle chamber, and out of the middle chamber, and into the third. Scripture does not tell us what these side chambers were used for, but they were evidently not part of the temple proper, or at least not in its religious function. There seems to be no means of access between the galleries and the temple proper, and the presence of the galleries would obstruct the entrance of the temple from any direction but the front. Most of this is familiar from Masonic ritual, but there are two particular points to ponder. In the first place, according to the volume of the Sacred Law, the temple had but a single entrance at the east. In Masonic tradition, we are t told that one of the junctures, th at one juncture, three individuals sev severely placed themselves at the south, north, and east entrances of the temple. Later in the same account, we hear fifty, fifteen trusty fellowcraft who form themselves into three fellowcraft lodges and depart from these entrances of the temple. Secondly, according to the Bible, the winding staircase began at a side door, not the main entrance and led up, the, led up to the side chambers, which were not religious in function. The Masonic work, on the other hand, states that our ancient brethren had passed the two great pillars of the entrance they ascended on the winding staircase, which led up to the middle chamber, where their attention was particularly directed to certain Hebrew characters of deep religious denotation. Clearly, the volume of the sacred law and our work are at variance, the former is more likely to reflect historical truth, and indeed can be shown that the ritual is not independent of the volume of the sacred law, but is founded upon it. What are we to make of these oddities and contradictions? If we pick up a book about Canada, and it tells us that the capital of, Al of Alberta is Calgary, or that that of Quebec is Montreal, shall we judge it harshly and discard it immediately? What shall we say about the society which tells us about histories that disagree with the best evidence? Were those who framed their ritual ignorant, incompetent, even charlatans? The answer is that our ritual makes no pretense on reciting history or communicating facts. It does claim to provide moral instruction. The ritual is largely found upon the holy scriptures, but occasionally it deviates from what might be expected. Usually this is done because the symbolism is being manipulated to teach a lesson. We permit Shakespeare to tamper with history for his own artistic purpose. Shall we permit any less in Freemasonry? 
Let us take an example. We are told that our lodges are situated due east and west. In some Sonic temples, however, the lodge room is situated nearly due north and south. The direction, which we call east, is really north. The explanation is that the Masonic east is symbolic, not geographical. When we say that the Worshipful Master is placed in the east, this is a constant reminder that he is a source of light and wisdom in the lodge. There are many symbols in craft Freemasonry, but the two fundamental sets cluster around the Temple of Solomon and the Three Degrees. It can be shown that Solomon's Temple represents not only the Lodge Room, and that the Temple not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, but above all the spiritual edifice of the individual Mason. The Three Degrees, on the other hand, explicitly represent the three stages of human existence, infancy, maturity, and death. They are also closely connected with the three principal officers. From time to time, these two sets of symbols come in contact. Some of these contradictions we noted above are caused by their, this interaction. Firstly, in order to understand why there are three entrances, consider what happens at them. The Grand Master approaches each in turn, just as every Mason comes to his three degrees, and as all men arrive to the three stages of life, those who station themselves at the three entrances are represented by the three rulers of the lodge. The system of recurrent threes has intersected the temple's symbolism and affected its details. In fact, as the allegory of this degree now is now presented, it is impossible for us to visualize the temple without three entrances. Secondly, let us look at the winding stair in the middle chamber. As we have seen, the religious part of the temple is divided into three parts the porch, the nave, and the sanctum sanctorum, and the holiness increases as you proceed. So too with craft Freemasonry, as it is divided into three degrees, and the insight increases as you proceed. From this point, the nave is the equivalent of the fellow craft degree, midway through Freemasonry, superior to an entered apprentice, but inferior as regards to the knowledge which is later to be communicated. Once the nave is identified as with the midway of masonry, it is natural for it to be called the middle chamber, even though the name belongs properly to the side galleries. When the middle chamber is transferred by this meaning into a sacred part of the temple, it brings its winding stair with it around the front. Since we are not teaching history, no harm is done. From a symbolic viewpoint, the change is a distinct asset. The explanation of the winding stair emphasizes the notion of progress and the ascent from an entered apprentice degree to a fellow craft one, and it underlines the more intellectual bias of the second degree, and prepares the way for a more esoteric nature of the master mason degree. This, then, is one way in which to approach those parts of the work which seem to be illogical or incorrect. Much of the symbolical part of our ritual is more than 200 years old. The men who composed them were not infallible, but they were good men, wise men, learned men, and above all, they understood the method of teaching by symbol. They bequeathed to us the high tenets and principles of Freemasonry. As a vehicle for expressing these ideals, they left us a rich treasure of symbol and allegory in our Masonic work. If they diverged from the sources, they did so with a purpose. If we can see what we are trying to do in any given passage, we can use, usually discover, the reason for the divergence. So th that's a really good piece. I, I like that piece. That as I 
said in the intro, I'm, I'm a bit of a black and white guy, so I have to be sort of told to uh, suspend my belief a little bit and let things just sort of be what they are. And as long as it's explained to me, then I'm usually okay with that. Now, there was a couple references to uh, provinces in Canada, and no, Calgary is not the province's capital, Edmonton is, and Montreal is not the capital of Quebec, Quebec City is. So, just, uh, so yes, I'm just a little, once again, black and white, have to give a uh, full explanation as to what things are about. So that's it for this week. Um, we're coming into the Christmas holidays here and uh, taking a look at uh, our cal- my social calendar, and things are look- getting quite busy here. So there may be some... Some weekends here where things get a little bit uh, hairy and uh, and I won't be able to get an episode out, but I'll be working in the background and hope maybe even working on um, some new features to the website if, if anyone's interested in those. But by all means, come by, visit, and uh, love to hear from you at the podcast, or I guess what is it, podcast at thedigitalfreemason.com. So until next time, be sure to keep the shiny side up.